If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, I'm Rob Attar, and this is the fourth History Extra podcast for July 2012. Coming up in this week's episode, we have... The Luddites were not anti-technology, but what they were anti was the use to which technology was increasingly being put. That was Matthew Roberts talking about the Luddites. For much, though not all, of her government, the position was that a British team should not go to the Olympic Games. And that was Kevin Jeffries on a Cold War Olympics boycott. This podcast comes to you from the team behind BBC History magazine, which is Britain's best-selling history magazine. You can find us in all good news agents and on subscription. And there are more details of our latest issue and subscription deals on our website, which is historyextra.com. And we're also now available in a number of digital formats. You can purchase our Kindle edition direct from the Amazon website, and our iPad edition is available from the Apple newsstand. To find out more information on that iPad edition, please visit historyextra.com forward slash iPad. And as always, you can keep up to date with us and get in touch at facebook.com forward slash history extra and twitter.com forward slash history extra. Now, 200 years ago, Luddite uprisings were taking place across Britain's main textile areas in response to technological changes in the industry. The magazine's section editor, Charlotte Hodgman, spoke to Matthew Roberts of Sheffield Hallam University to find out more. So who were the Luddites and what did they wish to achieve? In the Midlands, at least, which is where Luddism originated um, in the villages um, around Nottingham and, and then later in Derbyshire and Leicestershire, they are typically young framework knitters uh, in their late teens or very early 20s. Um, so we are talking about people who were quite new to the trade of framework knitting um, some of them were perhaps still um, on apprenticeship training programs, as we call them these days, um, or they had just finished them. Um, we know that some of them, uh, from family reconstitution work that I've been doing on some of the Luddites in the Midlands, that they'd just recently been married, mm -hmm. they had young families. Um, and generally, I think we're looking at people who were at a particularly vulnerable stage um, in, in the poverty cycle. Um, the, the earnings of, of these men would be quite low um, if they've got a, a young family, of course. Um, there'd be more mouths to feed there. And typically the wives would often work for the framework knitters. But again, if they've got young families, then um, the mothers wouldn't really have have the time to be um, helping the father as, as much as possible. And that, of course, is presuming that uh, the father had actually got employment at this time. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of located mainly in the north of, of, of England? Yeah, um, we're talking mostly about the framework knitting uh, industry that surrounded um, Nottingham um, and, to a lesser extent, Leicester and, and Derby. Um, and then it spreads, of course, into the northwest, Lancashire and Cheshire, uh, Cheshire and the West Riding as well. Um, but yeah, what unites all of these regions is that we're talking about a group of textile workers mm. um, who are making clothes. And in the case of the East Midlands, there are two main branches to framework knitting. The first is uh, what's often referred to as a kind of hosiery trade, um, making stockings, gloves, um, those sorts of, of clothes, often traditionally as well, very fine quality um, uh, garments. Okay, and but surely technology had affected more people than just um, this small area. Um, why do you think the movement was unable to spread any further? I think the main reason why it remains 
um, limited to those areas is that it is a movement that emerges as an intensely local response to very specific grievances in those textile trades. Um, though it certainly raises broader questions about economy, technology and the future. But, um, I mean, if, again, if I can talk just a little bit about the framework knitters in the East Midlands, mm -hmm. they have got some very specific grievances. And it has to be said in 1811 when Luddism begins, these are not new grievances. Um, certainly um, in, in Nottinghamshire, we're not talking about Luddism as emerging as a, a kind of knee-jerk response to the introduction of new technology. Um, the frames that these knitters work had remained virtually the same since they were invented in the 16th century. So to be quite clear about this, the Luddites were not anti-technology, but what they were anti was the use to which technology was increasingly being put. Um, so the main difference um, that, that's happening is that Garments had often been made in a way that was known as fully fashioned on, an, on a frame. Um, intricate work, high quality work. But because of the growing competition in the industry and against the background, of course, of the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars, um, there's a lot more competition. Um, textiles has been a big boom area in the late 18th century. So you've got a lot of people who have started to invest in this industry. And when times get hard, markets start to get glutted. Mm -hmm. And the hosiers, those who employ the framework knitters, to try and remain competitive, um, do two things. The first of which is that they enter the growing market for mass cheap clothing. So what you start to see is that instead of of garments like stockings being fully fashioned on the frame, that you start to see garments being made from big pieces of cloth that have been um, manufactured on the machine, and then the articles are actually cut out from this cloth, hence the phrase cut-ups. This is one of the grievances of the Luddites, these cheap inferior goods that are now beginning to uh, glut the market. And what's really worrying them is that to the untrained eye, these cheap mass-produced goods, shoddy goods if you like, look exactly the same as the real fashioned um, expensive garments. Um, and the second way in which hosiers are still trying to turn a profit is by passing on more of the production costs to the knitters. Uh, knitters have to pay frame rents to the hosiers. Um, this is, it should be said, an industry that is still primarily a rural one. They work in their own homes or in workshops close to their home, and they rent the frames from the hosiers. Okay. Um, so it is the proliferation then of cut-ups um, and cults uh, the second big grievance of the knitters, cults, uh, of course, is a, a, a derogatory phrase used to refer to those who are unapprenticed. Mm -hmm. uh, the other big way, of course, the hosiers are now turning profits is by employing knitters who have not been properly apprenticed. So that's where you get that, that sort of big, uh, those two big grievances of the Luddites against cut-ups and cults. Okay. Um, but what do they actually wish to achieve? Do they want a, a full reversal so to go back to the old ways? Partly. Um, what they are mainly concerned with, of course, is that the consumer at the time be made aware of the conditions under which these goods are being produced. Um, and, of course, they're also trying to protect the consumers by saying to them, look, um, beware of what you're buying here. And it seems to me one of the biggest parallels between Luddism and the present day, of course, is the fair trade movement. That in, in, in 1811, there was no consumer activists around who were aware of those sorts of issues. We're much more conscious these days. Um, hence, as I say, the rise of fair trade about the conditions under which goods are produced. The Luddites try to get consumers um, uh, aware of these issues, um, but it falls on deaf ears. So they don't so much want um, to turn the clock back in, in a straightforward way of getting rid of cut-ups. I mean, it has to be said that one of the few growth areas within the hosiery trade at this time are cut-ups, but they want it to be made much clearer um, okay. about these different kinds of goods that are being produced. And more broadly, of course, they are um, rebelling against the idea that market forces simply should be the only way in which 
um, you know, the economy is conducted. They are, in, they do have a powerful sense of a moral economy, which really is that working men have the right to work. And if you are willing to work, you should be able to earn a sufficient wage to feed yourself and your family. And because of these exploitative practices that have been introduced, that, of course, has been um, been seriously undermined so that's what they're rebelling against as such it's as i say it's not technology per se it's the way in which technology is being used um to the disadvantage of the knitters okay and how are they viewed by society at large and also by governments they are viewed um as a serious threat um i mean we looking back again now can think well a group of people who are trying to make consumers more aware of conditions under which things are produced. This doesn't seem very radical in no. its aims, but of, but of course it was at the time, primarily because, as I've said already, that we are seeing the rise of market forces. Um, if there are people who are displaced, that is seen as an unfortunate consequence of, of the new economic uh, message of, of Adam Smith and his followers. Um, and even more worrying are the methods that the Luddites are using. Now, typically, Luddism in the Midlands has often been seen as, as a kind of poor cousin um, to, to Luddism in the West Riding and Lancashire by historians. It's often been presented as much less violent. But um, I, I mean, I think that really depends where you look. If you look in those small villages that surround Nottingham, the places that are, if you like, the epicenters of Luddism, there's an enormous amount of violence. Um, we're not just talking about um, the breaking of machines. We're talking about windows being smashed, of doors kicked in, of blows being exchanged, cottages and workshops plundered, um, with residents held at gunpoints. The hosiers and the magistrates um, were sent threatening letters. Police and soldiers were also threatened and attacked. Um, and a number of highway robbers, robberies are, are committed all in the name of, of Ned Ludd, and again, often at gunpoint or hatchet point. So um, it seems to me you've really got to understand just how serious this situation mm. was. Um, so, I mean, I know from the perspective of today, the response from the government can seem all out of proportion. Um, by the spring of 1812, something like 4,000 troops had been dispatched to Nottinghamshire in what was, in the words of the Home Secretary at the time, Richard Ryder, uh, he says it was a larger force than had ever before been necessary for the quelling of any local disturbance. So this does seem like overkill, but we've got to remember uh, the context in which authorities, the authorities were operating. Apart from the odd parish constable, there was no police force to speak of. Um, and as the letters from local elites, such as the Duke of Newcastle, um, who at least had the good fortune to be uh, safely ensconced out at Clumber Park a lot of the time, um, he's constantly writing letters to the Home Secretary saying the authorities are simply powerless in the face of these guerrilla warfare tactics that the Luddites are using. I suppose it was also set against the backdrop of things like the French Revolution and things like that, so I suppose people were a bit more suspicious. Very much so, um, and one of the things that is worrying to the property classes and uh, the authorities is that the Luddites may well have connections with or even themselves be radicals interests in not just getting rid of of, um, of hate of machinery or turning the clock back but also wanting to bring about a radical change in government now it has to be said that from what we know and that's always an important caveat with Luddism because we are talking about uh, essentially a secret movement um, that, that by its very nature didn't leave much evidence for the benefit of, of future historians. That, but what we do know is that that radical um, element was very weak in the Midlands, certainly in 1811-12. It is more of, a, of, of, a, of an aspect of Luddism in Lancashire and the West Riding. Um, but even so, the authorities and the property classes are always worried that um, what we're looking at here is a Jacobin radical threat. Um, so they resort to all sorts of, of practices. The Home Secretary instructs uh, the post office to open letters from suspected Luddites. There's a real fear that Luddites in Nottinghamshire are corresponding with Luddites in the West Riding and Lancashire, and, and not without legitimate concerns. Okay, and 
so what actually did the government do about it? They they deployed these troops. Um, and there were a number of executions as well, weren't there? Yep. Um, now, what, the, the kind of paradox you've got here is that despite this big deployment of force, and we're not just talking about uh, regular army, we're also talking about the embodiment of the militia, the calling out of the omenry, um, and the swearing in of hundreds of special constables. The paradox, though, it seems that once the government's done this and a few Luddites are actually brought to trial, the punishments can, can seem somewhat piecemeal. But you've got to understand something about the criminal justice system at, at the time. Um, and unlike today, this it didn't proceed on the assumption that everybody who committed a crime needed to be convicted and punished. It proceeded on the assumption that examples needed to be made. So this is partly why you see only a really a small group of Luddites rounded up. And, and I don't want to minimise the punishment that um, the, the unfortunate few who were rounded up faced. You know, we're talking about something like, I think, 40 people were transported to New South Wales and around 30, I think, were executed. So, you know, I don't want to trivialise that. But again, if you, if you take it back to that enormous amount of force that was deployed, it does seem like um, something of a piecemeal response. But as I say, you've got to understand how the criminal justice system operates at this time. It's about um, using punishment as a deterrent. Uh, and, and it has to be said that at the assizes in Nottingham, um, the Lent assizes in, in March 1812, and then more famously at Leicester in 1816, um, it really does act as a deterrent. Luddism um, disappears uh, underground at the very least because it becomes very dangerous. Um, in the Midlands back in 1812, the government had made frame-breaking a capital offence, which again gives you an indication of just how worried they are at this time. Just going back to some of the tactics used by the Luddites to get their message across, um, do you think the use of violence lost some support uh, in, the, in wider society? I think that is probably right, um, in the Midlands, one of the thing that, things that really concerns central government and the authorities in Nottingham is that when frame-breaking starts in the villages surrounding um, Nottingham, the county magistrates don't really seem to be very quick off the mark. Now, some have said, as they did at the time and have since, that that was because a lot of these county magistrates happen to live very close to the Luddites. So they, they don't want to be seen to be um, actively conspiring against them. But to my mind, a much more convincing explanation for why they were slow to act is because there is quite a bit of sympathy for what the Luddites are trying to achieve. Uh, because magistrates traditionally had been the ones who had often arbitrated in local wage disputes. They themselves have been part of this older moral economy. The idea is that workers should be paid a certain wage and that things can't be left to market forces. Now, of course, those county magistrates are eventually forced to act. And I think the reason why they eventually act is because of that violence. Um, Luddism is becoming simply too serious um, to be left to its own accord. And I think in the first instance, none of them think that, OK, we, we privately sympathise with the plight of the framework knitters and hopefully a little bit of, of violence, um, bloodletting almost, if you will, will, um, will bring both sides, the hosiers and the, the knitters to their senses. But of course, that doesn't happen. Uh, the situation deteriorates and goes from bad to worse. So they are eventually forced to respond. So, yes, the violence of Luddism, uh, I think, uh, unites the various elements of the property classes. And was it this, do you think, that contributed to their failure? Yes. Um, there's, there's no doubt in my mind that it is... Um, the response of the property classes, um, that unleashing of massive, uh, massive force against them that ultimately uh, means that you know, market forces in the long term were, were going to triumph. And some historians view Luddites as sort of working class heroes. Is this something that you agree with? Well, this, of course, is a view most famously put by E.P. Thompson in The Making of the English Working Class. Um, I think one thing that is undeniable is that Luddites are drawn overwhelmingly, if not exclusively, from the working class. Um, 
while Luddite leaders may have been skilled craftsmen, though, we know that Luddite followers, those who often made up the crowds, were labourers. There are instances in the Midlands of bricklayers and factory workers, um, though, no, though not directly involved in framework knitting themselves. They did join in with the, the Luddites in the attacks, but certainly the vast majority of, of Luddites from what we know are framework knitters. Mm -hmm. um, but, but I haven't found any instances, perhaps not surprisingly, of groups from outside the working class making up the faces of the Luddite crowd. Now, the Luddites at the time were certainly viewed as heroes by some um, in, in the working class community because they were standing up against what appeared like overwhelming odds. Mm -hmm. The solidarity of the working class, some have argued, was evident in the absolute refusal of any of them to give up the secrets of Luddism or inform against them. On the other hand, some have said that it was only fear of the consequences that prevented some of the working classes from informing on the Luddites. We know that potential informers were often threatened and that the few workers who did incriminate Luddites had to be entered into the equivalent of witness protection programmes. Okay. Um, so the Luddites uh, at the time as today are great dividers. Um, they're heroes or villains. There's not much in between. And do you see it as a radical movement? I think that in terms of its aims, it appeared radical mm -hmm. to those at the time because of that wanting to turn the clock back. Um, one thing that the Home Secretaries make very clear, particularly Lord Sidmouth, um, is that Luddites are inevitable if regrettable casualties of of what's going on um, and to simply try and stop that march of of progress as they see it um is not only wrong but, but dangerous and, and probably impossible um so to them the the aims are very are very radical but probably what seems to be most radical about the luddites are those methods that they are willing to use um, and that's why historians and indeed contemporaries still have problems with the Luddites, is that they are one of the few examples in modern British, modern English history, I should say, of radicals using direct action. There is that lingering view that this is somehow un-English, um, that, you know, that that sort of direct action is what the, um, the animated Celtic fringe and continentals get up to. It's not what English workers get up to. Um, and it's not a coincidence, I think, that you still see in, in this, this year, this 200 by the, the, the bicentenary of Luddism, the question posed, were the Luddites right? Now, that's never a question we ask about the Chartists. Um, it's never a question we ask about the Tolpuddle Martyrs because they pursued their goals through um, means that are much more um, comfortable for us. And, of course, that they pursued their goals in ways that anticipated uh, how things would turn out in the future. Trade unionism, holding strikes, the Tolpuddle Martyrs, uh, the Chartists campaigning for the vote for people, the idea that you should participate, that you should pursue constitutional objectives through constitutional means. So but because the Luddites didn't do that, that's what makes them really difficult um, for, 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 for contemporaries today to deal with, I think. But did they not try initially by they issued pamphlets and they did they did issue petitions to government and things like that, didn't they? They did. There is there is um, the kind of two sides to to Luddism. And historians have never been quite sure whether they were directed by the, the same um, people, um, whether that there were those such as the the. Um, parliamentary campaign of Gravener Henson, the leader of um, the moderate wing of, of the framework knitters in the Midlands. He is organising a campaign to try and get Parliament to introduce legislation that protects the knitters. Mm -hmm. Now, some have said that there is a connection between that uh, open constitutional aspect and the frame-breaking episode as well. That They seem to note that um, the two periods go in oscillation, that when there's a big drive to petition Parliament to persuade them there isn't any frame-breaking. When Parliament doesn't show itself willing to respond, frame-breaking resumes. I mean, to my mind, though, that, that's a little bit too neat. Mm -hmm. um, I think part of the answer is that um, it depends whereabouts you are looking. Certainly in the Midlands, it seems to be the case that those who are willing to pursue the more constitutional line are from the better-paid branches of the hosiery trade. They're often lace workers or silk workers, 
Whereas um, in the villages, this is where you get the lower paid branches of the framework knitters. And it's no coincidence that it's there that you see um, more, much more frame breaking than you do in Nottingham itself. Um, so they enjoy an, an uneasy relationship, those two branches, the constitutional branch and the frame-breaking branch. That was Dr Matthew Roberts, Senior Lecturer at Sheffield Hallam University, talking to Charlotte Hodgman. We ran a feature on Luddism in our May issue, which is still available as a back issue and through Kindle and iPad. And now we have a short advert break. Want to enjoy great historic days out this summer? Membership to Historic Royal Palaces allows free and unlimited entry to the Tower of London, Hampton Court Palace, the Banqueting House, Kensington Palace and Kew Palace. With Olympic events and celebrations at Hampton Court Palace, plus exclusive member events and an array of new exhibitions across the palaces, 2012 promises to be the year to be a member. Prices start from just £43 a year. Visit hrp.org.uk or call 0844 482 to become a member of our historic royal family. On the anniversary of the 2011 London riots, critically acclaimed historian Clive Bloom tells the full story of last summer's unrest from the perspective of protesters, police and government. Using a range of sources, from security briefings to reportage, his new book Riot City provides an enlightening account of the modern protest movement, placing it in the context of a long history of rebellion and violence. Riot City is the most complete historical account of the student unrest of 2010 and the summer riots of 2011, available now from all good bookshops. Also available in paperback, Violent London, 2,000 years of riots, rebels and revolts. For more information, visit www.clivebloom.com or follow Clive on Twitter, at Clive Bloom. Britain has competed at every single one of the modern Olympics, but in 1980, Cold War tensions almost ended that record. Western disapproval of the Soviet Union's invasion of Afghanistan the previous year led to calls for a boycott that were endorsed by the British Conservative government. But how would the athletes react to political involvement in their sports? I spoke to historian Kevin Jeffries of the University of Plymouth to discover what happened next. The 1980 Olympics were held in Moscow. How how were they approved to hold this Games in the first place? Well, the International Olympic Committee awarded the Games to Moscow in the mid-1970s. Um, the Games hadn't previously been held in a communist state, and so there was a feeling amongst IOC delegates who determine where the Games go that it was time that uh, that was sort of rectified. And so there wasn't a problem about the Games being awarded in the normal manner in which the IOC award the Games to, to the Soviet Union. And it wasn't controversial at the time of the awarding? There was a certain sort of degree of concern uh, at the time, but given that the given that the IOC was sort of an independent body it was free to make its own decisions it was a world co controlling authority of the games and therefore there wasn't there wasn't major and protracted controversy between the time at which it was awarded to moscow and the end of the 1970s and the real spark of course came with the soviet invasion of afghanistan so when the games were awarded the cold war wasn't in one of its worst phases perhaps no, that's right. It wasn't in one of its its worst phases, and therefore there was an expectation that uh, the games would go ahead in Moscow as planned, and that that was only really derailed by the Soviet invasion. The Montreal Olympics of 1976 had suffered from uh, a boycott, uh, particularly over the question of sporting links with South Africa, uh, but there wasn't until the until the invasion of Afghanistan there wasn't a major movement to to absent for, for nations to absent themselves from the Moscow Games. 
So the invasion of Afghanistan was 1979. What impact did that have more widely on the Cold War? Eventually, it was to lead to a phase of uh, a sort of a, a deterioration in Cold War relationships between the West and the East, because it was regarded by many in the West as a sort of a an unnecessary uh, act of aggression and provocation, and that the the catalyst for for the the way in which that played out. The Olympics played a major role in that because the Americans did have the option of regarding the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan as a sort of a regional issue and therefore not one to require a major sort of global response. But the imminence of the Games meant that the Americans in particular felt that it would be a, a sort of a major propaganda coup for the Russians, for the Soviets, to hold the most important sporting spectacle in the world just months after invading Afghanistan. And therefore, that conditioned, that ratcheted up, if you like, the desire for initially of the Americans and then of other, other Western states to respond by uh, boycotting the Games. And how did Britain fit into this story? Well, Britain was left with the choice of deciding whether to follow the uh, the initiative which was really led by the American president Jimmy Carter who uh, wanted to he ruled out military reaction against the Soviets but he did decide quite early on after the Russian invasion at Christmas 1979 that one of the best means of retaliation would be to first of all to try and see if it would be possible to relocate the Olympic Games away from Moscow and failing that to then actually organise um, uh, as far as possible a global boycott of the Moscow Games and America like other democratic uh, regimes had the faced the issue of whether to then follow the American lead or to um, to proceed to to go to the games, bearing in mind that Britain had a, a long tradition of supporting the Olympic Games, and British teams had competed at every uh, Summer Olympics since the revival of the modern Olympics in 1896, and so um, that set the scene for what became a, a quite a large-scale political conflict in the first six months of 1980, based around the question of whether to essentially whether a British team should go to the Moscow Olympics or not. And what was the position of the British government in this debate? The position of Margaret Thatcher, as head, she'd been head of the Conservative government for six months or more now, elected in May 1979, her position was based upon her status as a conviction politician that it was her, the right thing to do was to back up the American Anglo-American special relationship to cement her ties with the Americans by siding with um, with them in, in the calls for relocating or boycotting the Olympic Games, and so for her, the and for her event, for, for much though not all of her government, the position was that a British team should not go to the Olympic Games. In other words, diplomacy should take precedence over sport. Was her clear view on this, based upon a conviction that uh, it would be wrong to, 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 as she put it, to condone an international crime of, of invasion, invas invading Afghanistan by sending a team to, to the Moscow Olympics. The problem here, of course, was that um, unlike in certain areas of the world, uh, British governments didn't have any control over sport or they had limited control over the the way in which sport was controlled and organized sport in in britain was traditionally run by uh, voluntary bodies either the individual national governing bodies of sport of individual sports or above that sort of level of authority by the british olympic association and it was that which that organization the boa which had responsibility for organizing a team uh, to send to the olympics and it had throughout the 20th century uh, and also raising most of the money to send a team because at that time most athletes were still amateur athletes and it was necessary to raise funds to provide sort of travel costs and subsistence costs for athletes to go and compete in the Olympics. And so this sort of, again, this provided the background for sort of a clash between a government on the one hand which wanted to, which, which did not wish a British team to go to the Games 
and the the British Olympic Association, the national governing bodies themselves, and of course many of the individual athletes who did want to attend the games, having sort of trained for you know this was to be the pinnacle for many of them of their athletic careers, and um, many of those resented being drawn into a political dispute. There having been a tradition in this country of, of feeling that sport and politics should be kept in separate compartments, even though that hadn't entirely been the case throughout the 20th century, there was still nevertheless a quite a strong re residual feeling that sport and politics should be kept in separate compartments. So what efforts did the British government make to try and dissuade the athletes from going to Moscow? Well, initially, the um, in the first few weeks of the 1980, the efforts focused on as I mentioned earlier on, and trying to relocate the Moscow Games. The, uh, Jimmy Carter and Margaret Thatcher held the view that it might be possible to, to persuade the International Olympic Committee and uh, at national level bodies like the British Olympic Association to agree to relocating the Games whether to another another country singly or to host a sort of almost a series of mini Olympic Games in different countries. And so the British government was prepared to contemplate some of these events being held in Britain. And it took several weeks really in the first sort of stage of the crisis in 1980 to become clear that the International Olympic Committee would not agree to do this. And early in February, it, it uh, made it very clear publicly that um, to the Americans that, that as far as it was concerned, the games would go ahead exactly as planned. Um, and so um, after that had happened and after the Winter Olympics had taken place, uh, which was early February, which actually in the United States, which was quite awkward because the Russians came to, to the Winter Games in Lake Placid and there, was, there were various controversies there against the sort of backcloth of, the, of the, um, the Afghan crisis. But the Winter Games went ahead. But once they were out of the way, the Americans sort of ratcheted up the, the uh, attempt to persuade others to join, to join them in a global boycott. And so from about early February 1980, uh, the British government started to sort of increase the pressure on the, on the BOA to try and make them fall into line and agree to not send a team to, to, to Moscow. So amongst the things that Mrs. Thatcher did, for example, she uh, resigned as she was one of the patrons, the different party leaders in Britain were patrons of the BOA's appeal for funds to, to businesses and private individuals to raise the sort of million or so pounds needed, felt that was needed to send a team to, to Moscow. She resigned as a patron of that appeal, which made it very difficult for the appeal fund to continue and its, its sources of funding dried up. Um, but one of the effects of this was that it, it, it actually stiffened the resolve of the British Olympic Association and it led them to to forge some links with uh, the Labour Party in Parliament um, who helped use, for example, trade union cont contacts to find new sources of funding to make sure that there would be sufficient money to send a British team. So in sort of February and March of 1980, the, um, the government increased the sort of pressure on the on the athletes, partly through um, using sympathetic newspapers to attack people like Sir Dennis Follows as being unpatriotic for not wishing to follow the sort of lead, um, and using the using the newspapers, but in particular using um, a, a, de a big debate in Parliament, which came up in March 1980. And what happened in uh, in this debate was that uh, the government sponsored a motion, put forward a motion, uh, simply saying that a British team should not go to the Moscow Olympics. And the Prime Minister's idea at this point was that uh, a vote with the Conservatives having a majority in the House of Commons, of course, in government, that a vote would place sufficient pressure on the BOA that they would then fall into line and agree a, a team shouldn't go. So the debate, the debate itself was, was, you know, one of the most interesting there has been in terms of a relationship between sport and politics. So it was a, a six-hour parliamentary debate, um, probably the longest about the Olympics thus far in, in sort of 20th century history, um, in which the arguments sort of raged on sort of both sides, those who felt that um, it was the right thing to do to uh, not to condone international aggression, others, particularly on the Labour benches, um, attacking that position 
and saying this was opportunistic and the athletes were being specially um, singled out, whereas other uh, possible retaliatory measures like trade measures against uh, the Soviet Union were not being prioritised in the same way, although the government would say they did take some trade retaliation measures against the Soviet Union at the same time. The, so the, the debate was an interesting spectacle. Um, and the vote, the vote looked to be clear-cut because the government had a majority and that majority was used and, and seen in supporting the motion that a British team shouldn't go to the Moscow Games. Uh, but on closer inspection, it, it hadn't been a sort of a resounding victory for the government. And one of the reasons for this was not only that a small number of Conservative MPs actually abstained in that vote because they were uneasy about um, the government's line on this, um, but perhaps the, the most revealing moment in that debate was the revelation that the, uh, the Minister of Sport in the Conservative government, um, uh, a man called Hector Monroe, was actually not allowed to speak for the government. And this stemmed from the fact that Hector Munro, the Minister of Sport, was actually deeply uneasy about the whole position and he was a figure who took a sort of a view quite similar to Sir Dennis Follows of the BOA in a way that sport and politics sh shouldn't really sort of mix and that it should be left to the sporting authorities to, to make their own decisions. And so right from the start of the crisis, um, Hector Monroe, the Minister of Sport, had actually been sidelined in this. And the lead, Mrs Thatcher, made sure that ministers in the uh, Foreign and Commonwealth Office really took the lead in determining governing policy. So, um, you know, there were one or two observations in the parliamentary debate that it was a very curious situation where the Minister for Sport was not allowed to speak on one of the most important um, debates on sport that there had been in parliamentary history. And it was later revealed that Monroe was, was actually fairly close to, to resignation at this point, um, but didn't in fact resign in the end, having only been in office for, for, for not a very long period. Um, so the parliamentary debate, although the motion went in favour of the government, it wasn't sort of interpreted as a sort of an outright victory, especially as it coincided with the publication of some opinion polls in the newspapers, really the first ones in, 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 in Britain about the, about the crisis. And the opinion polls mostly showed that the majority of those responding actually favoured the, the athletes and felt uh, by a majority of about sort of 70, 30, sometimes less in some of the polls, but there was a feeling, one, that the Olympic Games should go ahead and two, that a British team should attend. So it would appear that by this stage of the crisis, by spring 1980, um, the government was, was struggling to sort of bring public opinion into line on its side. And so... Um, within a week or so of the parliamentary debate, rather than it forcing the BOA to, uh, to, to follow the government's line and uh, accept that a team shouldn't go, the BOA actually made a public statement uh, announcing, finally confirming that it was the intention that a British team would go. And although not all individual Olympic sports had followed that, that BOA line, um, the great majority in the bigger sports like athletics and swimming had done so. Could the government have actually forced the BOA not to go, or was it just a matter of applying pressure? It didn't have any... It, it couldn't compel them as a sort of an independent, uh, an independent authority in sport, and so it, it didn't have that power. Um, and when one looks across the world at the nations which did fall into line behind the American line, often in terms of sort of democratic regimes, it was the governments who invested more money into sport and so had more of a financial lever over the, over the sporting authorities. It's only really in the last sort of 20 to 30 years in this country that Britain has invested very heavily in elite Olympic athletes. Um, back in the 1970s and earlier, although there was some government funding seeping into the support of uh, Olympic athletes because of the, the amateur tradition, it still wasn't on a very large scale. So the government didn't really have a financial 
hold over the um, over the BOA. And as I mentioned earlier on, the fact that uh, the the BOA could find could fund its appeal for funds elsewhere through uh, once the official funds sort of dried up, meant that the financial factor wasn't going to bar athletes from going. So there was no way of other than other than persuasion. What this was the main weapon um, of of the government. Whether it exhausted all of those weapons sufficiently is one of the interesting aspects of the story. Um, whether the government played its hand as as best it might to, in other words, whether it could have secured, whether it could have persuaded them to have gone, is the sort of a, an open question. But as it as it stands, it appears that the efforts that they did make rather backfired and rather sort of stiffened the resolve of the BOA and the individual athletes to actually go. So there is the question of whether their actions were counterproductive. The it's perhaps worth adding that the the crisis continued, although by the end of March it was clear a British team would go. It wasn't yet clear whether that would be what shape that team would be in. Uh, there was still something to play for in the sort of months between um, April and the beginning of the games in July, and so the government. Of course, it wasn't really Mrs. Thatcher's way to to give up, so she continued those efforts to. And what really happened after after April, after the BOA had made it clear it was going to sanction the sending of a team, the government concentrated more on actually trying to persuade the the separate governing bodies of sport and actual individuals themselves about not going. And um, it did persuade four of the uh, different federations, which were hockey, shooting, yachting, equestrianism. They agreed in the end not to send athletes to, to the Games. The other individual governing bodies went ahead. But during the summer of 1980, you had behind the scenes some quite concerted pressure on in some sort of key individual athletes not to go to the games and some of these of course were very high profile athletes the most famous of which and ironic in some ways was Sebastian Coe um, his um, his father Peter Coe was his trainer and manager because Sebastian Coe was regarded as one of Britain's main medal prospects for the Moscow Games and he um, uh, he was actually visited, Peter Coe was visited by quite a leading government minister to try and persuade him to that his son shouldn't go and Peter Coe made it very clear that he resented this um, he resented the idea that his son should be used as a, a political pawn um, and felt that uh, made it very clear that, um, that 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 Sebco had every intention of going. So although although athletes you know athletes were placed in quite an uncomfortable position, many of them of course were, wanted to make it clear they didn't condone Soviet aggression, but they didn't see why they should be singled out when, as it were, other things like trade uh, I mentioned were not singled out in the same way and one of the sort of things that decisively sort of swung opinion even further in favor of the athletes going was when it was revealed that the the british trade figures with the soviet union actually increased in the first quarter by quite a substantial sum first quarter of 1980 now the government said that was because that was because of agreements previously in place, but it nevertheless made it, uh, it was quite an important rhetorical victory for those who felt the athletes should go. And it, it strengthened this feeling that the athletes were being sort of uniquely picked upon, as it were. And they, so they, they made the point, for example, that them going to Moscow was no more condemning uh, international aggression than was the continued presence of a British ambassador in Moscow, because the government decided, for example, not to withdraw the British ambassador from Moscow. So those sort of arguments continued behind the scenes, really, right up to the running, almost to the opening ceremony of the Games in July. And the, the actual outcome was that altogether... About uh, about sixty nations refused to go to the Moscow Games. Not all of those because of the Afghan issue. The majority of them so. So sixty nations followed the Americans, including some 
you know, major and big athletic nations, the West Germans, and there were countries from Africa and all parts of the world who followed the American-led boycott. But the, the British team was actually the largest there from Western Europe. And despite the, the absence of, of um, the, the hockey players and so on, the British team numbered over 200 individual athletes. And uh, rather to the sort of um, the embarrassment of the government, in a way, did quite well in competition once the Moscow Games got underway and of course Sebastian Coe uh, was one of our gold gold medalists uh, in the in the Olympic Games where we came I think it was ninth in the official medal table with something like five gold medals and was any steps taken by the British athletes at the Games to show their disapproval of what the Soviets had done the it was agreed and the BOA agreed to this that the uh, the British team would celebrate and march under the Olympic flag rather than the British flag and and so this was a concession to 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 show uh, that yes there was a sort of a sympathy with that with the view with the government's view and that it was trying not to condone international aggression but I think when the um, when the the actual competition began and when the nation got somewhat embroiled in the co versus steve ovet rivalry in the 800 and the 1500 meters even although the bbc television coverage was more was less extensive than it than it, than it had been in the past as a again as a sort of a, a recognition of a sort of difficult situation there was nevertheless a feeling that um you know co and ovet their rivalry was a sort of a peculiarly sort of British rivalry and there was a sense that uh, certainly when they won there was the 800 and the 1500 metres events, their gold medals, that back home in Britain they were sort of very, it was very much seen as British triumphs and, uh, you know, curiously celebrated, including, one has to say, by the same newspapers, many of the same newspapers who'd exhorted the athletes not to go. That was Kevin Jeffries of the University of Plymouth. Kevin is the author of Sport and Politics in Modern Britain, The Road to 2012, published by Palgrave Macmillan. He has also written an article on the 1980 Games, which appears in our August issue, Out Now. Now our August edition is a Norman Conquest special, and if that's whetted your appetite for all things Norman, then you might well be interested in a lecture that we're putting on at the British Academy. On the 20th of September, you can hear historians Mark Morris and Tracy Borman give talks about the events of 1066, and you'll also get the chance to meet both Mark and Tracy and to purchase signed copies of their books. For more details of this lecture, please visit historyextra.com forward slash lectures, and magazine subscribers will get a discount on the ticket price. Well, that's about it for this week's episode. We shall return next week with a special edition recorded at the Tower of London and featuring historians Saul David and Sam Willis. Do please join us for that. In the meantime, keep an eye on our website, historyextra.com, for blogs, features, quizzes, galleries and more. Plus, don't forget you can find our new Kindle and iPad editions on the Amazon website and Apple newsstand, respectively. The History Extra weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and it's produced by Dave Gibson. collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.